0: Good morning, it's good to see you, it's good to see all of you here, this is what you have when you have a church meeting in more than one auditorium at a time. <sighs> welcome to First Christian Church today, welcome to of you in the West Auditorium, to everybody in the East Auditorium who have already seen, and to all of you online. Yeah, that was a fast pace across the building to get here on time, but I'm very glad you're with us, and I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to John chapter 20. <sighs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> And uh, so glad that all of you are here today. This is um, an interesting time for us indeed, isn't it, to figure out how to do church life together in a new way and uh, meeting literally in hundreds of locations, I assume at this point around the world, but certainly in our community with people at home and in in the building here in various auditoriums. So let's spend some time together. If I've never not met you before, my name is Wayne, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to spend some time in John chapter 20 today. And um, sort of to step into that, maybe I should... Uh, well, some of you may be aware that a... Um, I don't know if it's a project. You could That's not the right language. A, um, well, there was, there, was a, there was a task that landed on our family, uh, that Leslie and I took on starting seven years ago. Namely, back in the late summer of 2013... It became apparent that my in-laws, Cecil and Sarah Wilson, they had spent their whole married life in High Point, North Carolina, right in the center of the state. It became obvious as they were moving into their 80s um, that they were going to need some assistance from family, and there was nobody else in the community around them who were family members. And so to make a long story short, they moved from High Point, North Carolina to Decatur. And uh, we had some good years here with them, here in the community, and uh, many of you got to meet them and know them during that period of time. Cecil died in 2016, and then Sarah, my mother-in-law, died just a few days before Christmas last year. And uh, so then it became, okay, they had chosen to be uh, cremated, and we were going to bury their cremains back in their hometown where they grew up in Black Mountain, North Carolina. Uh, and we were scheduled to conduct that ceremony early in the year, but then COVID came along and messed with the plan, and so a lot of things were put on hold until last, uh, the last Monday of June. Uh, we brought that project, if you will. I don't like that language, whatever it is. That, that endeavor came to a conclusion when we buried their cremains in the Veterans Cemetery in Black Mountain, North Carolina. It was a lovely setting and, indeed, a sweet time as a family we were there. My brother-in-law and his family were there. Uh, Eva- Leslie's uh, 93-year-old aunt, who uh, she is Sarah's sister, she's the only one remaining of the 14 siblings in that mountain country family, and uh, she was there. They all joined together, and we had a sweet time. And then the Veterans Administration said to us, as we're kind of leaving, they said, now, we need to know how you want their headstone to be worded. And they said, "We'll put their names, we need some statement about them, so we put Cecil and Sarah together in Christ. That's the language we used. And then they said, now, we have, you have to sign off on how you want the deceased's name to appear on the headstone, because all the headstones are exactly alike, all right? And so, like, for example, my mother-in-law's name is Sarah Rice Wilson. That's her, 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 her first name, her maiden name, and then her last name. And so... So do do we put Sarah Rice Wilson three names there and her birth date and date of death, or do we go Sarah Wilson and skip the middle, or do we put S R Wilson? And so we're trying to figure out all that because there's a little dilemma that what we'd do with mom, we'd also want to do with dad, and um, that's where the dilemma came along because Cecil never ever liked his middle name. I mean, it wasn't just a dislike. I was in the family years before he had trusted me long, trusted me enough to say. This is what my name is, and all of you are dying to know what his name is, right? Well, out of respect for him, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Now, we did when we had his funeral here in this in this room right here. We did actually list his name on the card, and um, that was the only time it ever went public. I I think it might be in the obituary, so you're going to have to go back and search the World Wide Web to find it, maybe. But nonetheless. This business of our names being known and how we feel about our names and what our names mean in terms of the story of our lives and how our names are connected to to that story, that business is found in our biblical passage today because what we're doing today is we're completing our walk through the book of John, telling where John gives us a biography of Jesus' life, his ministry, his uh, death, and his resurrection. And uh, as we conclude that today, we're going to look at a number of stories that come come out of Jesus' life after the resurrection. And so to set the stage for what we're about to read, maybe this would help you, that the resurrection we know occurred some 2,000 years ago. And Scripture tells us that on the other side of the re- resurrection, after that occurred, Jesus was on this earth in his resurrected body for less than 40 days, and he was um, seen by some 500 different people. And uh, one of them, who was the first to see him, was a woman. Would you read with me in John chapter 20, beginning at verse verse 10, where it's been discovered that the the tomb where Jesus' body had been, it's been discovered that the tomb is empty, and uh, the disciples don't know what to do. So we read this in verse 10. The disciples went back to where they were staying. They're trying to figure out where is Jesus' body. Now Mary, one of the disciples, not one of the 12 disciples, but she's a follower of Jesus Christ. Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, well, his body's gone. They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize Jesus at this point. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? What what are you looking for? What's going on? Who is it that you're missing? And thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you're in charge of all of this, if you've carried away his body, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get to him there. And Jesus simply says to her, Mary. He called her by name, and with that she immediately recognized him, and she turns towards him and cries out in Arabani, Ar- which means teacher. Now, What I love about this story, and we've looked at this this sort of idea before, that Mary recognized Jesus as soon as Jesus called her by name. I like that Jesus knew her story. Jesus knew her name. You know, I'll say this. Jesus knows my father-in-law's middle name. You may not, but Jesus does. And Jesus knows your story. I may not know your story, I may not know all the implications of your name, but our God in heaven does. You know, I read recently about a, a guy who um, uh, had a son at age 24. Now, when I say that, I don't mean he had the son and the son was 24 suddenly. I mean, he was 24 when the little boy was born. All right? And so the little boy is born, and um, this 24-year-old father um, decides that he's going to name his son some sort of um, name that might attract attention for his son in the future. So he names him Tristan Flip, F-L-I-P Edwards, like as in Flip Wilson, though it's an official. His middle name is Flip. But now, 12 years later, this fellow by the name of Clint Edwards, now at 36 years of age, is debating the wisdom of having named his son Flip. He says this, each time we file something official, the person reading the document pauses, frowns a little, and says, Flip? Like, are you kidding me? Then they give me that cross eyed, twisted look they give to people who don't use proper car seats. It's like, (laughs) and he says, My son looks at the ground sheepishly, like he finds his middle name embarrassing. Is there some name that's been attached to you in the middle of your life that's embarrassing? Friend, Jesus knows your name, and Jesus knows your story even in the moments when you're inclined to hang your head in shame, looking sheepishly at the ground in embarrassment. Or Jesus knows your name when you're reading something on the computer screen that's either about you or to you and you're going, man, I'm just furious at this right now. Do you know that God in heaven knows that story, the full story? Jesus knows your name and your story. Let's look beyond what we see here with Mary and Jesus at another story. See, Because here's what happened. After Jesus calls Mary by name, she recognizes him. She has the conversation that we'd read at the beginning of that. And then she runs off to tell the rest of Jesus' followers. Jesus is alive, and so the disciples learn that Jesus' resurrection has actually taken place, that this woman by the name of Mary, she's actually seen him, and there's tremendous joy. But at the same time, you can imagine the fear that the disciples have. I mean, the resurrection is one thing. It's cool that Jesus has risen from the dead, but they are aware of this. In order for a resurrection to come along, a resurrection only happens if somebody dies beforehand. And they'd seen how Jesus had died. They'd seen the crucifixion. Oh, sure, he rose from the dead in glorious victory, but who are we kidding? That victory was preceded by a very gruesome crucifixion. It's only a week later, a week or so later, not not even within the week, pardon me. And the scene in Jerusalem hasn't changed. Jesus' followers are still at risk of life and limb. I mean, they're afraid. Read with me beginning in verse 19, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, they're afraid. Jesus shows up. Jesus comes among them and says, peace be with you. And he identifies himself because he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They're really thrilled that Jesus is alive. And is it any wonder that Jesus has to say peace? Because you'd want peace too if you'd been known to associate with a fellow who just a few days earlier had been executed for what the leaders considered heresy what the leaders considered a potential insurrection, and you've been following him, and he was executed. Wouldn't you be afraid, too, that you might be next? Surely someone in the room at this moment said, Man, is this a ghost I'm seeing? Am, am I having some sort of mental breakdown from the stress of all that's happened in the last few days? Well, read with me what goes, what happens in verse 21. Jesus has already said peace to to them. And again, Jesus says, peace be with you. They're still trying to take in this great joy, but at the same time, what's this going to look like for us in the future? And now He's going to give them a responsibility. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, and if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. Apparently, Based on this divine peace that they've received, the disciples are sent. And history shows us this, that they followed Jesus' instructions and they went around the world in the years that followed. And the disciples went from, if you will, this cluster of fearful people. They became a team of world changers. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, whether here in the West Auditorium, in the East Auditorium, at home, wherever you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you can thank the people who gathered in the room in John chapter 20. They were the ones who started the story of Jesus Christ going around the world. And did you notice, did you hear the message that they're supposed to take? As they go, Jesus says, go and forgive. Forgiveness. He says, go and change the world Through forgiveness. And surely someone in the room went again. Am am I having a mental breakdown? Forgiveness? (laughs) You're kidding me, right? Couldn't it be something else, Jesus? How are we going to take over the world through forgiveness? Could we have some military might? Could we have some supernatural powers that are available at the click of our fingers? Like like Jesus, if we're going to go around the world, don't you know? Think about ancient world days. Don't you know we're going to have to go around the world in creaky wooden boats that leak a lot? We might die on getting around. Can't we have like teletransportation and just get to where we need to go? Like what's with forgiveness? I don't know, Jesus. I don't know that it's going to work so well. But forgiveness is the story of Christianity. Forgiveness by God And forgiveness from one person to another. Let me ask you this, how's the forgiveness department going in your life? Is the quotient of forgiveness really tall versus bitterness, or is it the other way around? Which is winning the day in your life? I want to tell you a story in this regard that's personal, and I have to treat it with some tenderness, if you will, to avoid offending some dear friends. Here's the long story short. Many years ago, Leslie and I had a relational struggle with these dear friends. Um, they're not from Decatur, uh, but we were a very, very close family. Um, in another city, we were doing when, when we were in our 20s and early 30s. Some comments were made and I was so deeply offended, I couldn't get past the comments. And I want to say, uh, I figured out pretty quickly that the relational struggle was my fault. Regardless of how it started, it was my fault because Scripture says that if somebody's offended, you to go to them, and I couldn't do it. I didn't have the courage, I guess, or the necessary emotional measure to bring the matter to light. I simply buried it, and once we moved to Decatur in 1994, I assumed it was done. Just move on. Except it wasn't done. I carried that unforgiveness with me, for more than 25 years. You know how it is, right? Life moves on. That's back there in the past. New stories are written. You're, God is writing this tremendous novel called Your Life with your name written at the top. And, you know, as God's working in your novel, there are new pages being torn, being, 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 being turned over, and, and, and there's some things that get torn out because God says, hey, I want that out. And, but but you know, the story's being written. And I kept thinking to myself, well, you know, all is good. Our lives are good. Their lives are good. It should end there. But it didn't. Because I had a problem. Many weekends here at First Christian Church, uh, somewhere through the worship service, not every weekend, but many weekends, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And part of that Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That word, as. Forgive us our errors, God, as, while we forgive, and in the way in which we forgive those who error against us. Forgive us our debts as, while, in the same way, we forgive our debtors. And for more than 25 years in the life of this church, I've sat in this room or the East Auditorium as that prayer has been prayed. And we get to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And guess whose picture comes to my mental video player. I've been praying that prayer for 25 years without any action on my part. You know that preachers are full, of hip, are full of hypocrisy, right? You know that, right? We are, we are, just like you. So, I guess I'd prayed the prayer long enough that I had to do something about it. And so last fall, I called them up, September, October. And I was so pleased that they didn't answer the phone. Seriously, I was, because I didn't know what I was going to say. I left a voicemail saying, hi, it's Wayne. Um, I did not have to even use my last name. They knew who I was. They recognized my voice. That's how close we were. And I said, it's been a long time. It's been too long. And then there were these long pauses. I didn't know what to say. And so I kind of blurted out something along these lines. Listen, it's been a lot of years. Our lives, your lives, have taken on new situations and setting. Our kids, which are, were tiny babies back when all this happened, they're all now grown up and have their own babies. And we didn't end well. 25 years ago, we didn't end well. And here's what I know. You guys love Jesus? less than I love Jesus, and our spirituality as it's matured is not in line with a broken relationship. Let's get together. We don't have to hash the past, and I'm sorry. So you hang up the phone, and you wonder, okay, what's going to happen next? Is, it, is there going to be a response? What do you think happened? Sure enough, a few hours later, the phone rang. And you know what happened after that? Breakfast, a few days later. And in the midst of that breakfast, more than 25 years of needless angst became a chapter of the past. My fault, my problem, my immaturity, my dilemma, my blunder. God's solution, forgive. I have a question for you today. A question based on this passage of scripture that we've looked at here from John chapter 20. Since Jesus knows our name and our story and since we're sent in Jesus name bearing forgiveness as a way of life. Here's the question. Why did John include these events as he wrote Jesus biography? I mean, Why didn't he skip? There were certainly things he skipped. After all, if you think about papyrus in the ancient world was a very expensive item to buy. If you were writing, you couldn't run down to the local staples and plop down $5.34 and get, you know, a ream of paper that if you didn't like what you're writing, just crumple it up and throw it away. No, papyrus was extremely expensive. So you'd have to be very careful what you included and what you omitted. And John tells us why he included the stories that he did. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. Why are these ones written down? That you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And there you have it, friends. John says, I could have written a lot more, I could have detailed all sorts of stories, but I chose these ones for this reason, that you'd believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that his life, I want you to believe, and then as you're part of that belief, I want his life imparted to you. Now, friends, I'm not John. You and I both know that. But the reason for this sermon, the reason for any sermon that comes from this pulpit space is for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and for you to receive life in his name each and every one of you. That's why the ministry of this church exists. We look different than the people who started this congregation 186 years ago in 1834. We look different than the people who, started, who were part of the life of this church in 1920, 100 years ago. Imagine what they would think if they saw us today and cameras and lights and it being spread across the world for those who want to see it. We look different than we did in 1920 or 2010, or for that matter. Our church looks significantly different than it did even in January of this past year, doesn't it? The circumstances of our life together have shifted in recent months, and I have a sense the way things are moving around the world, I have a sense that, man, things may shift again, even yet in the next few days. I don't know, maybe this week, but this truth remains. We boldly proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, and life is found in Him and Him alone. I want you to watch and hear one member, how one member of our congregation has learned about this in recent years.
1: My name is Ashley Dunmire, and I've attended First Christian Church for four years now. I grew up in, I don't know if I want to call it broken. Um, I did every weekend with my dad until I was 10. Um, I had a, a mom and a stepdad under my roof, and all kinds of siblings. There was definitely dysfunction. I grew up really fast, I'll say, falling into just a group of people that led me to experiences that just pulled me in. Um, Life was just a big party. It was drinking and drugs and it was like when you went to bed at night, you didn't know if you would wake up the next morning and sometimes you didn't care. So I was 20 years old and um, I had recently gone through quite a few things. One of the girls that we would all hang out with, um, she overdosed and she passed away. And I just—I remember at her funeral, um, I didn't feel well and I thought, well, it's just probably because of anxiety and it was probably a week after that of just feeling just sick, just not feeling well that I found out that I was pregnant and that was the moment when I felt God just tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, this is a different path you're gonna take and I know who you are. But there were also dark days. There were days of just being a pregnant mom and being alone. There were days of being a single mom with a crying baby and not Not having the confidence to know that I could really do this and take care of her and then there were joyous days where I would just look at her and she was beautiful and celebrating her first words and her first tooth and when she walked and her first birthday I wasn't perfect by any means there were days that I was almost ashamed to even to ask for forgiveness for some of the things that I had done in my past and I just always remind myself that God is so much bigger than my past, than my problems, and it's it's forgiven. In my past, whenever I would go out and party or hang out with my friends, a lot of times that it involved a drive from Decatur to Springfield or even from Decatur to St. Louis, but I just remember it, it was always fun and we were always so excited um, to go out and, and to do stuff, but I now work as a nurse practitioner. Um, We serve the underserved in Springfield. And uh, I just, I make that drive every day from the Decatur area to Springfield. And I remember when I was a new grad, that first trip I took on the road, I I just cried and I thought, God, I'm on this same drive that used to be a destructive drive. And now I go and I help people and I have been redeemed and my story is, is so beautiful. I, I have a great career and a great family and the people's lives that I can touch and help even just in a moment in an exam room, it just proves that God can take any road and make it beautiful.
0: this. It's a great story indeed. That that is a great story indeed, and here's what I understand based on Ashley's story, based on Ashley's name that God knows. Jesus, the Son of God, is engaged. He's in the midst of a life-giving endeavor. He will take our, our stories and make them full of resurrection moments leading to a better life now and an eternal life in the future. Why and how does he do that? He's the Son of God. He's the resurrected Savior, our sin forgiver, who took a few ordinary folk from the ancient world, changed their lives, and transformed humanity's history. Your story, my story, can be changed accordingly. And I'd invite you to pray with me as we consider our willingness to do, as John requests, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray together. God, help us to believe in the places of unbelief. Help us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's your Son. Help us to believe that he came to this earth not just to kind of wander around and give some nice, pithy statements, but instead he came to die in order to resurrect so that we would be offered eternal life through you, that we would be offered stories that you're writing new and fresh each day for each person, God. Each person in this room, in the East Auditorium, each person online, God. I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would cause that person today to choose to believe in Jesus Christ. Choose, Lord, that we would say, tomorrow is a new day, this day is a new day. And I will believe that, God Almighty has a new story for me to write and I'll live it out. In Christ's name, amen. So um, each week during this series, we've been, we've been giving you what we call, we've called our Live It Project, some way in which you have to kind of put this week's message into action. And so here's my choice for you this week. I want you to choose to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and then live this life this week with a very fascinating reality. Here's what it is. Jesus, the Son of God, visited some 500 people in the days between his resurrection and when he went to heaven, and we, we love that, but that was in the past, but there's a day coming when that same resurrection power that's found in Jesus Christ will be seen by all of humanity, not just the 500 people, or not just experienced by us, but there's a day coming when all of, human, all of humanity, past, present, and future, will see Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear what's going to happen on that very day because John, the fellow who wrote this, these stories we read today, years later, God gave him a vision of how, if you will, history is going to come to an end. A vision of the future. And this is what he said. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand. That's a lot of angels. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. and In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them sing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who we live for, who we worship. And so I'd invite you to stand with me today in both auditoriums and if you feel comfortable at home, do the same thing because I want, to wo- I want to invite you to worship this Lamb, this Son of God. See, this Son of God is going to be proclaimed King of Kings as a loud voice from God's throne says, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, because of all this, I'm making everything new. And you should write this down. These are words that are trustworthy and true. It's done. It is. It's done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Let us be people who worship this Son of God, this King of Kings. Let's worship together.